This is episode 59 of Cinescope, and adventure is out there! Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Melanie Sanchez to talk about one of our favorite films, Up. Melanie, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Chad. How are you? I'm doing okay. It's uh, in the middle of the work week, and it's been a couple of weeks since we did Cinescope. We were supposed to record this episode two weeks ago. And both of us were feeling pretty under the weather, so that didn't happen. Mm -mm. And then last week, we were going to do it again, but something else came up in my personal life, and it just didn't work out. And so here we are. We're recording this on Tuesday, September 26th. It'll hopefully be out in the next day or two, and there will be another episode of Cinescope this week to catch us up at least a little bit. But I'm, I'm glad to finally be sitting down to talk about this movie with you. Me too. I think it was definitely worth the wait. I hope so. Um, and there's a reason we picked this movie that we'll talk about in just a moment. But before we get to that, how about you reintroduce yourself, tell us who you are, what you do, all that kind of stuff. Okay, well, my name is Melanie, and I am Chad's roommate. Been friends for about five, going on six years. And a little bit about me, um, I love movies. Long walk, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I'm a dental assistant. I work with kids all day long. It's one of my favorite things to do ever. And so I had no issue whatsoever watching Up with you. I could talk about Up all the time. So any Yes, Disney, I know. Any <laughs> Disney movie, actually. <laughs> yes, and you are engaged and soon to be married to Andrew, our other roommate at the moment. And we are, wow, what, two and a half weeks out at this point? I mean, not that anybody's counting, but yeah, we're at... 18 days. <laughs> 18 days. And that's why this movie in particular was significant. You know, we just finished a Disney month on Cinescope. And so I wasn't all that keen on going back to Disney so soon, but the timing was just too perfect and I couldn't resist because you have sort of structured the idea of your wedding around uh, our adventure book and up in general. And it's sort of just been a central idea of your wedding. So it's all too fitting that here we are two and a half weeks two weeks out from the wedding and we're talking about up. So I'm glad to be talking about it with you tonight. Yes, I'm really excited. Well, great. Let's go ahead and just jump into the discussion. So as as we've said, we are talking about up. This movie released on May 29th of 2009 was directed by Pete Docter, who also directed the Pixar films Monsters Incorporated and Inside Out. It was written by Bob Peterson and Pete Docter, and the story was by Peterson, Docter, and Tom McCarthy. The music is by Pixar frequenter Michael Giacchino, who also composed the scores for The Incredibles, Mission Impossible 3, Ratatouille, Star Trek, Cars 2, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, John Carter, Star Trek Into Darkness, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Inside Out, Star Trek Beyond, Doctor Strange, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, Spider-Man Homecoming, War for the Planet of the Apes, and is set to composed for the upcoming Coco and The Incredibles 2 both also for Pixar. And I can never shorten that list when I'm talking about Mr. <laughs> Giacchino. He, he is so good and he does so much work that I really can't narrow that down much more. Quite the variety. Yeah, lots of variety. Uh, this movie does star Ed Asner, Christopher Plummer, Jordan Nagai, Bob Peterson, Jeremy Ramft, and the Pixar frequenter John Ratzenberger. 
So as we always do, Melanie, what's your first experience that you remember with this movie? So I didn't see this movie in theaters. I didn't get the chance to. I actually saw it, I think, my sophomore year in college. But I had been putting it off because all I heard about this movie was like the first 10, 15 minutes of it. Yes, the infamous prologue. Yeah, where it's just gut-wrenching and you had to be like mentally prepared (laughs) to watch it. And I don't know, I wasn't in a place where I really wanted to get into something so deep. Everybody was kind of wary about it. So when I finally did watch it, it did live up to its hype. It was it was really sad, but I loved it every minute of it. I had a pretty similar experience, but I do think I saw it in theaters when it first released. And this was only the second Pixar movie that I really remember seeking out in the theater. We grew up with Pixar, but I didn't see Finding Nemo in theaters. I didn't see that until a few years later. And same with The Incredibles. As much as I love those films now and in retrospect, I just didn't see them in the theater. And so WALL-E was the first Pixar film I think I actually sought out and made sure to see in the theater. And they had WALL-E in 2008, they had this one in 2009, and they had Toy Story 3 in 2010. So for three years, that really is what cemented my love for Pixar in general. And I've caught almost all of them in theaters since. And this one in particular was just a big part of that because as you said, the prologue is so gut-wrenching, the premise is so creative, and it it's one of the few Pixar films to focus on human characters, um, which is cool. Mostly human characters, at least. Right. Um, you know, going into this movie, I don't remember a lot of the promotional material. I, I don't remember a lot of trailers, but I think the one image from before the film came out that really sticks in my head is it was like a shot of the sky and all of a sudden balloons come into view and then we see the house drifting up and Carl is just like sitting on his front porch or something. And it was like an early teaser trailer. It didn't reveal anything about the film except for there was this guy in a house flying with balloons. And from there, you don't really know what the movie's about, but it hooked you. It, it was like, what? what is this? It's just called Up? Okay. And here we are. So uh, let's get into talking about the story. What about the story or visuals or anything like that draws you in here? So I would think the main one that I would want to bring up is the balloons. The I don't think I'd seen that much color in a Pixar movie prior to that, except for Finding Nemo, which we did talk about quite a bit in our last podcast episode. But... um. I just think what they did with light reflection um, coming through the balloons, making them almost transparent. And I I keep thinking of that one scene in the very beginning, whenever his house finally does set free from the ground and goes up into the air, is going through the little girl's apartment window. And all you just see all of the light reflecting into her room. I think that was like, just like the coolest thing ever. Yeah, they use colors so well in this film, and especially in the balloons and the design of the house itself, the way they've got it colorfully painted and non-conventionally painted. Overall, the film is just beautiful to look at from the visuals to the set pieces, like the the cliff at Paradise Falls itself, the the giant alcove where Muntz keeps the spirit of adventure. In fact, I, I mentioned it when we watched tonight. There's a shot where you see Carl being escorted into the cavern by the dogs and he's got his house in tow and the house looks so tiny in comparison to this giant cavern. It's just a really cool shot. And then you have stuff like the rock jungle where Kevin and his, uh, Kevin and her babies live. And then Kevin's a girl. Kevin's a girl. (laughs) And then you have shots like when Muntz is revealing 
how sinister he really is and what he's done to all these people who've tried to steal Kevin over the years where he's just lit by candlelight. That's really the only light in the room and it's just shadows everywhere. And it's the first time we reveal that he's not the hero that Carl remembered him from his childhood. And so there's all these really cool visual cues and even just really simple shots like at the end when Carl's house slowly descends into the clouds and disappears at the end of the day and then subsequently when we see at the very very end that the house landed right next to the falls where it belongs so there's lots of cool visual things that happen in this movie and it starts with the balloons and how colorful they are I think one of the coolest scenes that um, I don't think we mentioned was the sunset scene whenever he's trying to get the house to paradise falls I thought that was really cool I hadn't seen a scene like that in a Pixar film where they played with shadows more so, where they gave just the outline of what was going on. I don't know if you remember that part. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about, where it's just sort of in silhouette. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that is really cool. Now, as for like actual story stuff and story content, I love that this starts with the opening newsreel sort of thing like I, I don't know exactly what time period that would have been probably 20s um because yeah, 20s, 20s or 30s it's lining up with charles Lindbergh is sort of the parallel for charles months and you've got the spirit adventure the spirit of st louis that's the parallel i think they're trying to draw and it really just ups the nostalgia without having to experience that time period firsthand because we've all seen other movies from that time period the one that came to mind tonight when we watched was uh well, there's the Incredibles, that's right. And then there's like uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where oh, yeah. that takes place in the, the 30s, 40s. 40s, yeah. And uh, yeah, and they, they have those newsreels in the theater and the cinemas there. Um, so it just gives us this old timiness to it. It establishes that, that Muntz is a character that Carl has admired since he was a kid and really was his inspiration all his life until he meets him, which we'll talk about. And it gives the whole film an old timey sense of adventure. We've got the, the serials of old, we've got theater newsreels, and it's just a great way to introduce us to the characters before we get that devastating prologue. Yeah. Speaking of the prologue, what do you have to say about it a little bit more in detail this time? So what I thought was ingenious was that they were able to tell this entire story of their love story without even saying a word. It was very dependent on the music score in order for you to feel the emotions that they were wanting to portray for sure, I think. I remember thinking how amazing it was that Disney was able to, or Pixar, excuse me, was able to go so deep about real life issues that couples do face. I mean, that's not to get too personal, but that is a that is a worry that I have is whenever Andrew and I do get married and we start to try to have our family, what if we're not able to have kids? Um, I think that's a real life issue that a lot of people go through. And Pixar was able to touch on that just a little bit, just enough so that you know what they're going through, but not get too heavy. Right. And. I mean, it's it's such simple storytelling, and we're we're the last people who need to praise this prologue because everybody under God's sun has <laughs> praised this prologue because exactly. it is such a, a prime example of excellent storytelling from Pixar. But it's so simple, and it's all through visuals and body language and through Giacchino's score, uh, the track Married Life. There's no dialogue, but there's so much that's conveyed in just those few minutes through watching the characters and listening to the music that so many other movies are hardly able to convey even in their entire runtime with lots of dialogue. Um, in that that short prologue, those few minutes, you have 
the you get to you get a glimpse of their zest for life and for adventure, their desire for children, and then the heartbreak of discovering that they can't have children, the ups and downs of living where they're, they're saving money for Paradise Falls and they get the jar up so full and all of a sudden something else happens, life happens, oh my it gosh, comes that's at so you. So true though, <laughs> right? It, it, something comes at you and all of a sudden your saving is for naught and you have to spend some of it and so th- it shows that and. Then Carl's shame when he realizes, wow, we've lived our entire lives and we haven't pursued our dream any further. And so he buys the tickets and then Ellie falls ill and she dies. And we have that that final shot of him just sitting in his chair alone. And the whole time we've been seeing glimpses of them together in those chairs. We know it's a staple of their their home. But here they are or here he is by himself, absent of Ellie for the first time since he was a kid. And it, it just it hits so close to home because, like you said, it's this movie and Pixar in general does a really good job of this. But I think Pete Docter and his films and Monsters, Inc. and this one and Inside Out, too, mm-hmm. he is so adept at exploring the human condition and the things that we experience in our lifetimes. In this one alone, we, we experience companionship, heartbreak, chasing dreams, death, letting go of things and th- th- these are all really heavy subjects that are explored in uh, a kid's film and not lightly explored it's not like they're touched on they they dive into these subjects and we get a lot out of it all in 10 minutes all in 10 minutes and then throughout the rest of the film we get a lot of that as well <laughs> but yeah i mean any anything else to say about the story in general in general no the last thing i would say is that the the action sequences are fun i mean oh, you, you, you've got to you got to have those moments of high intensity here and there and they're, they're the two big ones in this one are the chase scene uh with the dogs uh leaving the spirit of the spirit of adventure for the first time and then the blimp sequence at the end the the climax of the film mm-hmm. so let's talk about characters what do you have to say about carl so carl my first impression of him was how meek he was how quiet he was how much he depended on ellie to be that confident person in his life and then you see him as an older gentleman and you see he's become gruff and almost cynical with old age because he doesn't have that positive force in his life anymore. Because when he was a kid, he was so fearful. He, I mean, he didn't want to go over the, I mean, obviously, going over that board in the middle of the broken down house that became their home. He had right to be scared, but he did it because Ellie kind of pushed him to do something more. And... I think there was a correlation that he didn't have that drive, obviously, anymore after she passed away. So he kind of went back into his old ways where he didn't really want to push himself. Yeah, she encouraged him. And she she was an opposite personality in a lot of ways, but in a complimentary way. Um, they they really do complete each other, to use a, the cheesy phrase. Oh, but super cheesy. It is super cheesy, but that's what makes her loss so devastating is that um, she is such a a big part of his life. And then all of a sudden she's gone and he doesn't know how to live, uh, live the same way. Mm -hmm. So he spent his whole lifetime with her selling balloons to children at the zoo where she works. And now that she's gone, he seems to have sort of lost that joy to bring a smile to a child's face whenever he uh, would give him a balloon and he's he's lost that joy with children. I mean, Russell shows up and it's a huge annoyance for him. He he tries to send him off on a fool's errand chasing the snipe. <laughs> um, he, he's cynical. He's grumpy. And it, it's just, he, he's unwilling to draw close to Russell at first for that reason. Russell's 
energetic and has too many questions. And one of my favorite um, early interactions between the two of them is when Russell starts talking about the clouds and uh, pointing out all these things, looking out the window. I see this. I see this. That's a cumulonimbus, blah, 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 blah. And Carl just turns <laughs> down the hearing aid. And all of a sudden, he just it's, it's, it's a muffled sound in the background. I'm like, oh, that's much better. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just a funny moment and it's a fun uh, gag that is played because he's old and the, because he does wear hearing aids. It, it's it's a cute little moment. And he also, one of the more heartbreaking mom- or oh. parts of his character is the fact that he treats the house as his wife. All the way throughout the film, he's talking to his house as if Ellie is there with him and is there making decisions and guiding him. And in in his heart, she may be, but she's not there. And so every moment when uh, he turns to the house and makes a comment or tries to have a conversation in his mind with the house, it just (laughs) breaks your heart a little bit more. It does. Oh, I didn't even think about that. It's both adorable and sad, to be honest. I mean... She's gone. He's holding on to her in the only way he can, which is through the things that she left behind. Um, but she's also still in the afterlife, giving him strength and giving him bravery. I mean, the fact that he makes this trip at all is to show dedication to their shared dream. So so having her as some sort of entity, even though she's not physically there, um, she is there as the house, which it's a cool way to include her character without her actually being present. Now, what about Russell? What do you have to say about him? So Russell is basically any, what do you, what would you say, seven or eight-year-old? Yeah, basically. I, I was eight or nine. Eight or nine. Yeah, that you would interact with nowadays. I work with, like I said earlier, I work with kids all day, and that is a norm for my job. Super energetic, nonstop questions, constantly talking, and awareness for situations that I guess sometimes adults don't have anymore. Um, Sense of curiosity that is never ending. And I think his character is just something that Carl needed. Like you said earlier, that now that Ellie was gone, he needed that driving force again. And I think Russell definitely played a part in that for him. He is, he's fulfilling the same role that Ellie did, but Carl's just less willing to accept him. He represents the the energetic, the curious, he's boisterous. I mean, he he's out there. And the fact that he is a wilderness explorer just sums up everything about him. He's he's exploring, he's curious. He the wilderness must be explored. Ka ka rar. And <laughs> he he's out there to learn a lot, to explore a lot and uh to to be a distraction a lot because that's he's a kid. That's what he does is he grows attached to animals to to people really easily and mm-hmm. uh his emotions ride high and they ride low quickly it's a it's a snap decision snap uh, snap transformations and whether whether it's how he becomes immediately bored when they first begin the journey to a paradise falls walking the house <laughs> or how introspective he gets at the campfire talking about his dad and his sort of absence or estrangement from his dad right. and envisioning times or and and even when he becomes angry at Carl, when Carl abandons Kevin to save the house and he's impulsive, he, he leaves on his own to go rescue Kevin. He, he's chasing after a blimp uh, with some <laughs> balloons and a leaf blower. I mean, he doesn't have a plan. He's just out there to try and save this bird that he's grown attached to. I think one of the sadder parts that you just brought up that kind of made it 
again, back into those real life situations, is that this little boy just wants to do something that he knows his father would be really proud of. He talks about how great his dad was at camping, how often he did it, how he used to come and do like his merit badge pins. And it breaks your heart whenever he talks about how he used to do all of these things. And then it kind of just fizzled out where his dad was more and more absent. And um, I think one of the moments that brought Carl back into realizing that this little boy is just needing a friend, needing a role model, was when um, Russell was talking about the, I guess it would be his stepmother. I, I don't remember the name at the moment, but, and he goes, you mention her by, you call your mother by her first name? And then he's like, no, she says I call too much. And then he realizes, oh, it's, he's from a broken family. Um, he doesn't see his dad as much anymore. And then I think that's the moment Carl just comes to realization that he needs to not be so mean, not be such a gruff old man, but really kind of befriend this little boy who just wants to do adventures with him. Yeah, it's sad that he has no father to look up to, or at least not a reliable one, but he learns to respect Carl and he looks up to him as a surrogate father as the the film progresses. And uh, like I said, he's he's impulsive. He his his emotions ride high and low quickly, and that includes the ability to forgive quickly. Uh, when Carl shows up to save the day at the end of the film, after he's realized that memories are more than physical objects, he comes to save him, and Russell immediately forgets any anger. The only concern is that Carl is there, and he's there to help, and it, that that relationship is mended and it's strengthened through that that moment. And one of the things that feels like sort of a gut punch to me is in that campfire scene where all of this stuff about his father is revealed and how he's not there and he doesn't live with his mother and all that kind of stuff. And Carl starts to understand uh, as Russell drifts off to sleep, he says, we need to help Kevin. Do you promise to protect her? And Carl says, yes. And then Russell says, cross your heart. Like Ellie and him used to do. Oh, exactly. Like Ellie and Carl used to do. That was their thing. Was they they cross their heart. I promise to you that I'm going to uh, pursue our dreams together. We're going to go to Paradise Falls together. We're going to do this stuff together. I cross my heart. And now she's gone. He hasn't heard that in a long time. And all of a sudden, this little boy who is so representative of everything that Ellie used to be says, "Cross your heart. Do you promise that you will help me save Kevin and protect Kevin?" He says. Yes, I do, because he's he's starting to form that connection and starting to see the value in spending time with this kid. And probably the ultimate scene that really pulls at my heartstrings is the the final scene at the Wilderness Explorer ceremony where Carl shows up. There's a moment where Russell's just standing on stage by himself and you don't know if somebody is there. You don't know if his father showed up. You, You would expect him to. Russell expects him to. But ultimately, nope, he's not there. He's standing by himself and Carl walks up to give him the badge, but he doesn't give him the merit badge he just earned. He gives him the grape soda pin that Ellie gave him the very first day they met. And it's the very last possession he has of hers and he forfeits it for this kid that he has a bond with now, that he has a relationship with now. And it's just the ultimate moment where he says, we've had our adventure and now I am passing your zest for life onto this boy who needs it so much right now. And that, that really pulls at my heartstrings, too. That's fine, Chad. <laughs> Why? I, it's too late at night, and I think I'm really tired. 
did, but it just made me a little bit too emotional, I think. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's let's darken it a little bit. What do you have to say about uh, Charles Muntz? He instantly gives me the heebie-jeebies. Whenever we first saw him in the movie reel in the very beginning, he was like this very handsome, do- tall, dark, handsome kind of guy. And he was an, an explorer, so he was almost like appealing and then you felt bad for him because everybody discredited him, saying that he was a fraud and what he was finding wasn't true. And so you almost are rooting for him that he's going to go out there and he's going to find evidence of what he said that is true. And then you never hear from him again. So then when you see him as an older gentleman and like you said, the, those scenes where it's like this underlight comes and it's showing all the contours of his face, which Pixar is always amazing at their animation. How they are able to do any of that stuff is beyond me. But um, he just, you you feel, I don't know. For me, I felt gross. Like, it, you just knew something was up. From the moment Carl and Russell and Doug walked in, you knew just something wasn't right about the whole situation. And I think the creepier part of the whole scene with Charles was whenever he was realizing that... Um, Carl and Russell knew where Kevin was and he's been he's like so tunnel visioned on finding this creature so that he can go back home and rebuild his name that he doesn't even care he's hurting anybody anymore and he just starts ticking off the the helmets of the past explorers that had come and come in contact with him and it's just like who what happened to them and why does he have all of their helmets so it was just I don't know he's been a creepy character from the beginning for me yeah i mean i, I want to echo basically everything you said he, he's old and he's adorable at first i mean we meet him and <laughs> he, he's frail he's using a cane and he's talking about his adventures and carl's having a great time because he's meeting the hero from his boyhood this this guy who brought him and his wife together and fueled this lifelong dream of his and then all of a sudden it turns sinister and it turns scary, and there's candlelight, and shadows across his face, and he, he's he's ticking off the the thieves who have come and died mysteriously, and they, they found out that the mountain was more dangerous than they expected, and presumably he killed them. I mean, that's dark. And later he tries to kill Russell. I mean, this is his nine year old kid, and he just leaves him to to fall out of the hangar. It's yeah. a fall out of the hangar, yeah, of the of the spirit of adventure. Um, and I'll, I'll have more to say about that in detail later. But he's an example of ambition gone bad is the gist of his character. It's ambition gone bad. I mean, he's smart. He's shown uh, this immense control over his dogs and he invented these translators that allows him to talk, which is really cool. But he's also prideful. And that's what really caused him to become obsessive and leads to his demise in the end is him being so single mindedly focused on his goal that he puts other safety off to the side, he puts anything else off to the side. It's just get the bird and get it back to the States, dead or alive, so I can clear my name. And that's it. And it's yes, it's very selfish. And it, it just that's what makes him a villain. It's it's interesting that it's not that he's evil, it's that he is so self centered and so inwardly focused that he's not paying attention to the needs or concerns of others. And 
really lastly the the other characters we have i mean we have kevin um not much of a character but it's a it's a fun creature it's uh voiced by pete doctor the director and so <laughs> i i just i wish i hope there's video i need to explore the blu-ray and see if there's video of him just going into a microphone <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know maybe i hope so uh, that that would be quite fun but uh kevin's fun it's a it's a creative design again very colorful just like the balloons um, maybe there's some sort of parallel there, uh, theme-wise, right. uh, between the balloons and the the and Kevin the bird, a sort of sense of adventure or something like that. Um, but then we have the dogs. We have Doug in particular, but then the other dogs. So what do you have to say about these these very fun creatures? I love that they are like the, his little army. I love I loved everything about the dogs. I think something that I know you really do want to mention is how they don't call humans like a man or a woman they say they call them all male men <laughs> <He's> <laughs> like the smaller male man <laughs> yeah the, the old dog stereotype of chasing down male men and having some sort of uh aggressive feelings toward male men for some reason it, it's it's funny it is really funny and one of the things that i i wish it were true is their collars i wish that we could have collars that sometimes we can give our dogs voices like doug doug is my like the epitome of a dog I want one day. He's just so lovable. And all he wants to do is have someone who wants to have him and love on them. And he doesn't care if he, they get mad at him. And I mean that one scene where Carl just loses it because the house and isn't getting to paradise falls. And he goes, I'm not your master anymore. And then he just slinks away. Oh, just yeah, he calls him a bad dog. He calls him a bad dog. And that's and like the ultimate so insult sad. to a dog is, is bad dog. Oh, no, that's the one thing I don't want to be is a bad dog. And he just skulks away. Uh, I, I, the dogs in this movie, it's, it's funny. We talk about how Russell is so representative of boys his age in real life. The dogs are so representative of how I, imag- how I imagine dogs, especially Doug, where he, he's just so... Uh, scatterbrained his his speech flow is exactly sort of the chain of thought that i would think of a dog where he goes from uh uh, my master is good and smart and how do i ever so want the ball and i will get it and bring it back and squirrel and it's just this thought over here and i see this now and so i'm going to talk about this and now i think of this and so i'm going to talk about this it's so everywhere and it's funny i mean just speaking about doug in general you tell you can tell pretty early on that he's an outcast. One because he's by himself, and we see this other trio together. Mm-hmm. But two because he doesn't have a Greek letter as his name. Everybody else is Alpha or Gamma or Epsilon, the chef, uh, and Doug doesn't have one of those names. He's outcast. And he doesn't look like any of them either. They're all very. If you look at them, they're all not aggressive breeds, but they're all like tougher breeds. It's like a pinch. Um. um doberman and it's uh, a pit bull and it's a it's a bulldog and then you have doug and he's this fluffy little labrador like he's completely opposite of what all these other dogs look like so you can understand why he doesn't fit in their what their pack looks like yes i mean and, and even even the antagonistic dogs are so fitting into the mold of what we think of as dogs they're all full of energy they're all easily distracted even alpha gets distracted by a squirrel at one point Mm -hmm. they are all eager to please their master they're quick to love they're loyal to whether it's to months or to uh carl later on and um alpha has this really funny pattern of speech where (laughs) he it's like a roundabout way of talking where he says stuff like do you not agree with that which i am saying to you now (laughs) or why do i not have a surprised feeling 
and then later when they're in the spirit of adventure and Munz accidentally lets slip the word treat, like meeting you all has been a treat. And all of a sudden all the dogs freak out it. because <laughs> because they said the word treat. And that, I mean, dogs know what treats are when when you've had them a while. And so it's exactly how you would expect them to respond. It's It's so cool. And I mean, overall with Doug specifically, it's just amazing to see the range of emotion that they're able to get from such a simple character. Um, like at the end, after he, after Carl has taken off to go rescue Russell, Doug knocks on the door and Carl opens the door and, and Doug just says, I hid under your porch because I love you. And he's still (laughs) drooping his head because (laughs) it is, he's, he's still drooping his head because last time they spoke, uh, he was sent away because he was a bad dog. And, uh, it, it's just such a simple line that reveals everything the dog is thinking the dog Doug just wants to please that's all he wants to do he wants to please he wants to have a master who loves him so Carl responds likewise and it's a happy joyous moment and then they're off to save the day there's a subtle shift that Doug goes through uh, earlier in the chasing where he goes from referring to months as his master to referring to Carl as his master because he's sort of been cast away and he's got the cone of shame on been pushed aside and now he's escaping, he's helping him escape, and uh, Carl is his master. It's just a, a quick thing, um, but a big character shift. It's really cool. And I think to add into the, his character shift, I think it's really cool the progression that they did at, during the scene where um, Doug is in the control room and Alpha is trying to get to him and they get him behind the steering wheel. And he puts the cone of shame on Alpha and now he's stuck. So he's conquered him. And that's very reminiscent of what actually happens in dog packs the one that defeats the alpha is then made the alpha and he's completely floored he doesn't know what to do and he has now all this responsibility and that, i think that's really cool how they gave him a purpose then they gave him a place in their pack because now he's the leader of everything um so i thought that was really cool yeah it was a moment where doug was able to stand up for himself and take action and he was rewarded for it very cool um i think that's all the characters so yeah, this movie, I think, I that's why I love about it, too. It's very simplistic on its character line. Not that I don't love all these different movies that we get from Pixar, where they have lots and lots of characters, but I think it was kind of awesome to have a movie where you're focused on like maybe five or seven main characters and on their timelines only. Yeah, and even then, it's really just the three human characters that we're mostly focused on. The others are there for, for fluff. I mean, Doug definitely has his growth. Um, but our, our focus is on Carl Russell and Charles Muntz. And it's, it's interesting to explore their dynamics and uh, how they face similar situations, but respond differently, uh, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, when we get to relevance and themes. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the music. What do you have to say about Michael Giacchino's score for this one? You can, it's so recognizable. You hear the theme music and no matter where in the movie, you can always pick up where they are going with it. it there's always a tie back into the main theme it it's so and I, we can sing it all the time yeah i'll I mean, probably be humming it for the next like four days so <laughs> he won the academy award for the score which is very cool he it was very deserving and i know i've said it in the past couple of john or uh, the past couple of films we've talked about that michael giacchino scored where they've been my favorites i mean that's why we're talking about them on cinescope is because they are among my favorites and this one uh, probably has my favorite track individual cue by michael giacchino and that's the one uh memories can weigh you down 
where Carl has found the adventure book and he's, he decides, you know, this house doesn't matter. This stuff doesn't matter. I have my memories. I lived my life. It's time to go find a new adventure and to go save Russell. Sing it. I don't remember. Bum, ba, bum, ba, 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 bum, 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 bum. It's it's really cool, and then as as he finally gets the refrigerator, the last push, and it's this big sweeping string motif, and then we have the horns coming in, and then we get another. Um, you and your horns. Yeah, I'm a horn player, <laughs> and then uh, we we get uh, a French French horns playing the Merry Life theme. <laughs> And so speaking of married life, the, that is the main theme, the one you were talking about, the one that we hear through all throughout the prologue. Um, it's just such a simple theme. It's so quaint and it's easily manipulated. So you hear the the simplisticness of it when it's just referring to uh, Carl and Ellie at the beginning and it's joy, it's happy. Then later he twists it and restructures it. So it's more about sorrow and despair. And then later it's about longing and it's all about how quickly he plays it or what instrument he plays it on or sometimes it's exciting like in that married or in that memories can weigh you down track it, it's such a, a malleable theme which i think is really the genius of it when it comes to this score i think he was able to do that quite well i think if anybody had done it i think he, he was pretty much the genius to have done it um in the sense that to be able to draw emotions from people with just music, not just to say just music, but with a musical score like that. I mean, that takes tremendous amount of talent. Um, Something that reminds me similar to this, it's also a Pixar, but it's a short is um, Paper Man. Mm -hmm. Paper Man does that same thing where they, they able to do just this beautiful musical score where it has the swells and it has the strings and it has that chase scene and it gives you, it, it makes you excited. It makes you really engaged. And, I think Chikino was able to do that very well throughout the entire film, keeping you engaged, keeping you excited, keeping you enthralled. I thought that was awesome. Yeah, I think using a theme that is so recognizable and so easily manipulated was the real key here um, because it there's lots of composers who can do emotion pretty well, but to take one theme and to change it here and there, I mean, the whole prologue is basically just the married life theme over and over again, Mm -hmm. set in different contexts. So first we get it in like trumpet, then we get it in piano and then we get it in a slower piano. And so it's covering the entire gamut of emotions that is present just within the body language of the characters on screen. And it matches that and amplifies that. And then the other main theme that we get is the spirit of adventure theme, which is Munz's theme. We get this old time radio kind of uh, rendition of it. Uh, we actually hear it playing on the loudspeakers in the spirit of adventure in the dinner scene. And it, it's the theme itself is it's optimistic. It's, it's exciting. If you listen to the lyrics, it's uh, my spirit of adventure is you. Uh, it is sort of a love optimistic theme. But in the same way that married life is manipulated and changed, the spirit of adventure theme is manipulated too. And it becomes this darker. Yeah. It's very dark. It's really ominous villains theme. And uh, it underscores his threats after dinner. And th- that scene we've been referring to with the shadows on his face. And then in the, the dog chase right after that, we hear the same theme. And then in the, the finale blimp scene, it's present again. And it's just, it, it's taken this, this optimism and this hope and turned it into uh, darkness and evil and, poisoned ambition and it, it's it's just again it's really cool how Giacchino is able to just take one or two themes use them and utilize them over and over and over again and they feel completely different and feel completely different exactly 
So anything else about the music? I swear, Chad, no matter how much I know, like when I do these episodes with you and I have to pay attention to the movie, no matter how much I try to pay attention, I swear I'll never get as many little details as you do. I had no idea <laughs> on the set loudspeakers that the Spirited Adventure was playing on there. I had no idea. I was enthralled with something else. So I swear. It's so frustrating. <laughs> it's, it's a practice. It's a learned skill. Whatever, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go ahead and use that to transition into our relevance and themes section. So what's a takeaway you have from this movie? So... One of the bigger themes for me, I think, would be to not always hold on to the past, I think. I think that was really hard for Carl to do, like we've mentioned before, was to let go of his everyday life. I mean, during the marriage scene um, or married life scene, he did the same thing every single day. He, he did the tie. Ellie would tie his tie every single day. Different tie, but it would be the same task. I mean, he was so used to those things. He was used to getting up. And he, there was a scene where he would get up from his bed, he would go into the kitchen, he would then go out to the mailbox, and it was the same routine. And that's what he was used to. So I think it was just a testament on how it's okay to break away from things that you're you're normally a creature or habit of, because you're missing out on so many other things if you don't. I agree. I, I, I said the same sort of thing with the idea of death and letting go. Carl is overly attached to the idea of Ellie. He talks to the house as if it's her. He makes decisions that prioritize the house and his belongings over anything else because the house and Ellie are synonymous, are synonymous to him. Um, even at the start of the film, when just the mailbox in his front yard is damaged, it leads him to violence. He, he hits the, the construction worker over the head with his cane, and that sparks the whole events of the rest of the film. He, the reason he leaves for this adventure is because the alternative is to go into a retirement home and leave his house and his home and his belongings and memories behind. Um, then um, he prioritizes his house over Kevin, which leads to the, the rift between him and Russell, and... After that, Ellie's the one who teaches him to let go. He finds the adventure book and he's exploring it. And it's this scrapbook from their wedding and good times early on. And then it gets to uh, the the what I'm going to do section. And that's where it had previously been finished. And as he's about to put it away, the page folds a little bit and he sees that something new is there that he didn't know. And so he starts exploring and Ellie has gone through it, had gone through at some point and added pictures from the whole rest of their life up to her death and she leaves this note for him that says thanks for the adventure go find a new one and it just clicks with carl okay we had our adventure i didn't need to do this i don't need to have my house we did this already we already lived a full life together and had a great time and now it's time for me to do something else and there's this kid out there who needs me and so that's why I, that's one of the reasons I really like that track. I love the track title, Memories Can Weigh You Down, uh, mm. because that's, that's one of the big lessons of the film is memories can weigh you down. And it's not about forgetting the past. It's not about letting the idea of Ellie go. It's about letting the physical things go, because really, Ellie isn't the physical things. He doesn't need those to remember her and remember the good times they had together. And when he does learn that lesson and he starts tossing his things out the window and off the front porch, he does it so haphazardly without caring what he's breaking or what's smashing or any of that because he's learned his lesson. This stuff doesn't matter. It's just stuff. It's just stuff. He, he even tells Carl or he even tells Russell, you know, it's just a house. And that's that. Um, so 
really the lesson to me is letting go of things that weigh us down and keep us anchored to a single spot or to a single moment in our lives so that you can go out and live the rest of your life. I've got just another couple of takeaways. Uh, One of them is the idea of companionship. Um, You've got Carl and Ellie, then later you've got Carl and Russell, and it's just about finding the right companion that brings balance to your life. It's not that they, they, it's not that you can't be complete on your own. It's just that life is sweeter when you have a partner to share it with. They fill in your empty spots. They enrich your life. And Ellie does that for Carl uh, at first. And when he's lost her physical form, he only has his memories. Russell is able to step in and sort of fill that same role. And then in regards to months in particular, there's this idea of chasing dreams and the dangers of ambition. So Carl and Ellie have a dream of visiting Paradise Falls. They even dream of sort of living there at some point. They have the portrait that uh, that Carl carries around of the Paradise Falls with their house taped on next to the falls. And that's his goal. That's what he wants to, that's where he wants to live at this point. And so they live their lives in pursuit of that goal. They aren't successful in Ellie's lifetime, but Carl is persistent and he makes the trip eventually. Um, that's perfectly fine. And then Carl goes on to learn his own lessons from there. Months dreams of capturing the the beast of paradise falls to clear his name and it corrupts him as we already talked about it he, he's blinded by his ambition it becomes a sole focus of his life and it, it it poisons his outlook he he's no longer this fun-loving adventurer who's going out to explore new things and find new lands and new creatures he's single-mindedly tracing this or he's single-mindedly chasing this one thing as opposed to Carl and Ellie, who they have their dream, they didn't make it there together, but they still live the rest of their lives, mm-hmm. whether or not they succeeded in this dream or not. They didn't let it consume them, but months did. And he turns to killing, and he attempts to kill Russell even. And it really bothers you. I mean, it should bother you. I mean, he's a child, but you've mentioned that quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's crazy that um, he's so dead set on getting this bird back uh, to the state so he can clear his name and... Nobody remembers Charles Muntz anymore. He's right. probably 95, 105 years old. I mean, he's been gone for ages. So even if he did show up, who's really going to care, to be honest? No, because if you think about it, whenever Carl was looking up to this this guy, he was what? I would say about late 20s, and Carl was like six or seven years old. And then Carl's pretty old whenever he sees him. Like, it's a good correlation that like, he's probably long forgotten yeah there's no name to clear anymore because nobody cares nobody cares and that's a good way to describe it as consuming his his ambition is absolutely soul consuming and that's exactly scary to think about like nowadays that's how how a lot of people can be if you let it right and so it's just this it's about finding a balance it's about yes having goals yes chasing your goals but don't chase a single goal to the detriment of the rest of your life and that's what Muntz has done and that Carl and Ellie did not do thankfully and they lived a long happy life together so those are my takeaways did you have any more Melanie no I think we got them all okay well I think that is the end of the official 59th episode of Cinescope thank you for talking about this movie with me tonight Melanie you're so welcome Chad I had a lot of fun me too contact for the show facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes if you want to help us out. It'd be a big boost to the show. If you have any feedback or ideas, or if you're interested in co-hosting, you can contact me through email 
at thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. Now, Melanie, where can people find you online if they so choose? I mean, they can definitely try. Like I've mentioned before in previous episodes, I am just a troller on the interwebs. I really don't post as much. You can look for me at MelanieAmanda44 for Instagram. I think that's what I do the most nowadays. I mean, if you want to look at it, it's a lot of wedding stuff, so <laughs> feel free to do so. Um, actually, like we said, I am getting married in a couple of weeks, and the hashtag for it is a grand adventure. So you will see a lot of up themes slash Disney themes at the wedding, and that'll be kind of cool to follow if you want to look at it. Yes, that's for sure. And what we've always said for Andrew in the past is that if you want to contact him, uh, contact me. And I think for the most part, you could probably say the same for Melanie as well. That is very accurate. (laughs) The best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A and at facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And don't forget, I have another podcast called An American Workplace, and it is about The Office. It is an office rewatch podcast, and you can find it where podcasts can be found and at workplacepodcast.com. This week, we will be releasing episode 11. So show notes, contact information, all that, in, all that stuff you can find at our website, thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thanks, Melanie, again. It's been awesome talking to you tonight. Thanks so much, Chad. I loved it. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 59. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back later this week with episode 60. Have fun and celebrate movies. (laughs) 